The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on the show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of grief and loss and being diagnosed with brain cancer, such as glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. Or you can visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com for our blog, insights, and guest snapshots. Season two of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gamma Tile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. This episode is brought to you by Mimivax LLC, developing immunotherapeutic vaccines and therapies for treatment of cancers such as glioblastoma. Learn more at mimivax.com. You can't solve a problem on the same level that it was created. You have to rise above it to the next level. Albert Einstein. Einstein was a pioneer of his era, an outside thinker that pushed boundaries and the comfortableness of many. His early works were often discredited and considered nonsensical thinking. Many viewed him not as a serious astrophysicist or a scientist, but as a philosophical thinker. Einstein worked tirelessly for many years to have his thoughts, his views, and his creativity heard in the field of science. He viewed failure not in the terms of something's success, but in the terms of one's pursuit. It's when you stop trying at something that you fail at it, he often said. Innovation is the backbone for our modern world. Without innovation, we can't adapt and overcome the challenges of change, which are always occurring, always present, always guaranteed. Innovation and creativity are what foster growth, and growth is what we need if we are to tackle the many challenges of brain cancer, treatments, and care. Our guest today speaks to this very concept. A neurosurgeon and chairman for the Department of Neurosurgery Advocate Lutheran General Hospital in Park Ridge, Illinois, he has developed a novel brain cancer app with the hopes of sharing information and pushing the boundaries of modern medicine. We speak to him next after a brief word from our sponsor. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma tile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, your neurosurgeon implants tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go on for weeks, 
you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. Gametile therapy is for operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas. It is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gametile therapy is FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gametile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gametile.com. Welcome back. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Game on Glio podcast. Today's episode is actually going to focus on technology as it relates to brain cancer. It's a topic I haven't dived into very much um, as we've had all these discussions with guests um, on the show, but today's guest has an interesting app that he's developed, and it's something that we're going to dive into later on in the episode. But I'd like to welcome our guest. His name is Dr. John Rugi. He is the chairman for the Department of Neurosurgery at the Advocate Lutheran General Hospital in Park Ridge. He's trained as Northwestern University in Chicago. He is the Pediatric Neurosurgery Fellow at Lurie's, formerly Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. He is the founder of the Advocate Midwest Children's Brain Tumor Center, as well as the founder of the app Medelago, which we will be diving into later. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to dive right in. Um, it's interesting. You focus on both adult and pediatric brain tumors, correct? Yes. I've been very fortunate in my career to have that focus. And most recently, last several years, I'm focused purely on pediatric. Oh, really? Okay. So what made you focus more on the pediatric side than the adult side? Yes. Yeah, so that's my passion. I, you know, I, I was trained uh did a pediatric neurosurgery fellowship, and uh, my focus interest has uh, always been on brain tumors. And the pediatric world offers a lot more different pathologies, uh, different challenges. So, in working in pediatric brain tumors and brain cancer, you ended up founding the Midwest Children's Brain Tumor Center. How long ago did you found that center? Um, and in reflecting on the work that you're doing over the last several years in pediatric brain tumors and brain cancer, do you feel like you're seeing more cases now than you were when you first started out in in this area? So, yes. So, the Midwest Children's uh, Brain Tumor Center was founded after a need arose for a multidisciplinary uh, brain tumor center for children. Um, mm -hmm. At that time, it was about 20 years ago, uh, there was no center in the Chicagoland area. And um, now it's fairly common to have these multidisciplinary uh, care processes. But the answer to your question about the rise, and in fact, there is a rise in pediatric brain tumors. Um, the data is it's rising at 0.7% per year from 2010 to 2019. So what does that mean? First of all, pediatric brain tumors are relatively rare. There's 3.2 cases per every 100,000 births per year. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's very small. Very small. So to put that in perspective, there's about f between four and 5,000 new pediatric brain tumors in the United States diagnosed. And, and put that next to the adult world where there's about eighty-five to 90,000 new adult uh, brain tumors diagnosed. Um, so they're relatively rare and they're also 
multiple different diagnoses with subtypes involved. Okay. You know, your question is, why is this happening? Why is the rise in children? Um, and no one's exactly sure. It is interesting that the rise is more in the developed countries like um, United States, Europe, and Canada, mm-hmm. and less so in the Asian countries. Um, so there's something about that developed country that comes with a cost. <laughs> um, pollution, uh, exposures, pesticides, ionizing radiation. It's probably multifactorial. I have a couple of questions that are kind of lingering in my head right now, but I want to focus on, so when you mentioned the the actual number of cases, the four to 5,000 pediatric cases versus um, 80, 85 to 90,000 adult cases, those cases are just brain tumor in general, but not specifically brain cancer in general, correct? Yep, per year. And it's just new diagnosis of benign or malignant brain tumors. Okay. It's estimated there, there are over 800,000 adults living with brain tumors in the United States right now, with about every year a new 85 to 90,000 new diagnosis. So I'm curious... As we see these increases taking place, now you mentioned something about developmental countries, that that's kind of a, it seems to be a driver for more of these cases showing up that versus other countries. But it's still really hard to narrow down. It's so multifactorial, you say, but yet nobody really has a clear indication as to what it is that's driving individuals in these countries, in these developed countries to develop brain tumors and brain cancers, we can't seem to nail down whether there is an environmental tie or if there really is specifically something to do with technology being used or apps being used or microwave, used, you know, like that. So are there people looking into that? Or do, I mean, do we really have an idea or an indication as to why developed countries seem to be showing more cases? Or it's just because it's a developed country, we're thinking that there's just a lot that goes into that. This all gets into the epidemiology and the experts in looking at those questions of the best we can say is an association. Uh, you know, it's associated. Sometimes there's there are tumors that are associated with uh, alcohol use, um, nitroso compounds, and so forth. Um, the one thing that's clear is ionizing radiation. There's That's clear. And I've taken care of many patients that used to have cranial spinal radiation through some of the uh, hematologic tumors of childhood. And now 25 years later, having new brain tumors arise as a consequence of that early exposure to radiation to the nervous system. Uh, so that's clear. Ionizing radiation is a strong driver of uh, brain tumors. And then there's a whole group of familial, you know, genetically related tumors, uh, that syndromes, but those are relatively rare and pretty easy to figure out. They come in with a strong family history, you know. So where would you see um, ionizing radiation? I mean, when would that be used? Obviously, you mentioned, you know, other cancer treatments using radiation could open that door, but would there be other ways where somebody would be exposed to something like that? Well, that's the really interesting question that's been battled back and forth from different studies. Uh, cell phone use has been 
brought up there every once in a while. Um, and there was thought to be, in some studies, they show a slight association from the side of, of the cell phone use and acoustic neuroma development and so forth. But there's not been any strong use. Of, although I will tell you, most people tell you, you know, use your speaker. Keep, yeah, use your speaker. Don't put it right up against your ear for six hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, but I'm not sure. So that's still, you know, there's really not a strong driver to show, but there's just some indications that that could be just something that opens the door, but not a right. ton of strong evidence yet. Correct. Okay. But that's an example of the type of radiation that we're talking about. Correct. Okay. So I'm I'm curious, you know, as you go into this work, um, you know, the, the type of work that you're doing specifically now, you're saying in pediatric brain tumors. I know a big focus that you have is in gamma knife therapy and cyber knife therapy. And I've heard of gamma knife therapy. Most individuals who are in this arena, a patient, caregiver, doctor, you know, you've heard the term gamma knife quite often. I have actually never heard of cyber knife therapy. So I was wondering if you could tell us what they both are, you know, what gamma knife is versus cyber knife and how they differ. Sure. And first of all, they have very limited roles in very specific conditions in pediatric. It's not a very common uh, uh, radiation modality. Uh, the most common right now is proton beam radiation, which has a lot of benefits. Uh, uh, but these other two, uh, the gamma knife and cyber knife, are very precise uh, in that you can control the volume that you're radiating very precisely. So uh, the surrounding brain, the scatter, is very minimized. Um, so gamma knife is a frame system where frames put on your head and you, um, the radiation oncologist and neurosurgeon determine what volume they want radiated, where does the structure should protect, and then you go into a machine. It looks very much like an MRI machine sort of, and... Uh, the radiation is delivered. It's 192 little beams that all focus on one spot, and that volume can be controlled. Okay. And it, it can and it can blast it. Um, uh, it's very strong radiation, very precisely. CyberKnife is a frameless system. It's uh, you know, so gamma knife you can't use for spinal cord tumors. CyberKnife is similar in that it's f- precise. It doesn't require a frame. Um, and it's a rotating device that rotates in the room. You can adjust how those beams focus as well. Okay. So it's, it's they're just different modalities for precise delivery of radiation. More commonly used in children for vascular malformations that aren't operable or to pieces of a tumor that, that you particularly want to hit with more concentrated radiation in sensitive areas. It's, it's unusual. Proton beam radiation has really gained uh, momentum and and is probably the number one go-to now for pediatric radiation. So proton beam radiation, is is that safer for children? Is that why that's used more commonly than the gamma or the cyber knife? So uh, gamma and cyber knife are so precise, and sometimes these tumors are not that precise. Um, You don't want to have one millimeter accuracy because... There may be a diffuse nature or, or of the tumor, which is more typical. Right. Uh, the pro- proton therapy, you, you, when you want to hit the whole spinal cord or you want to hit the the, uh, big, the whole back of the brain mm-hmm. uh, to keep this tumor from coming back, it allows it to be go in but not come out. I see. Prior technology, it would pass right through. So it hit your heart, it hit your lungs, um, can hit both temporal lobes. You have memory difficulties, but protons you can stop it. So it, just hit the spinal cord. Don't keep going. Don't go 
and hit the heart and lungs. Much safer, less side effects. I think that's so fascinating um, that you can control where it goes so Mm -hmm. precisely. Um, It's such a game changer when it comes to targeting very specific tumors, but also protecting the patient more uh, because there are obviously heavy side effects. And when you're dealing with pediatrics, obviously, I mean, even with adults, you want to protect the patient as much as possible. But in pediatrics, they're, they're so young and so little and they're immune systems are still developing. So I think that that's absolutely fascinating. So that really is becoming more of the go-to when it comes to treating the pediatric cases. Correct. Okay. And you also use, if I read this correctly, you were one of the first to use a special dye that helped resect tumors from the brain and made it more visible like it did. so talk a little bit about this dye that's being used now because I, we're seeing this more and more um, in various medical articles that it's really helping to identify where the GBM and, and other brain tumors or cancers are located so yeah this is a fascinating story and uh, I think the Germans developed this dr. Walter Stumer out of Munich at that time um, and he showed in glioblastoma patients that by giving this liquid, you drink a couple hours before surgery and shining a particular color away from light, that the glioblastoma cells, the brain tumor, would light up like red hot charcoal coals. And that made it wonderful in surgery to do a more complete resection. That was in, back in the early 2000s. And I went over there and I said, geez, this looks like I want to try to use this over here. And I brought it over to the United States and was the first to use it in 2009. Uh, but it took me four years to get it, uh, something that had been proven safe and, and, and effective uh, to be used uh, in the United States. And only in 2017 then, you know, it took another four years for to share my protocol with other people and for other universities to go through the IRBs and so forth. 2017, it was FDA approved for adults. And it clearly shows that you have improved extent of resection. You can get more tumor out because wow. when you're operating, the center portion of the tumor is pretty easy to identify and, and remove, but it's the margins of the tumor and the margins of the tumors where all the tumors always come back. Mm-hmm. So that, that front line is where you want to know. And by you know operating and then shining light, you can see, oh my gosh, there's a little red coal over there on the other side. I, I, let me go get that. And it leads to a more complete resection. Mm-hmm. And now I've been working for the last four years with four different institutions around the United States to get this in for pediatric usage. And really, it brings me to a a topic that I'm just frustrated with, and that is how deadly slow it is to get new things that are well-proven and safe Mm -hmm. into usage. I'll be honest, you're not the first medical professional to have this frustration. This definitely seems to be a very sensitive spot, when, especially when it comes to things like brain cancer mm-hmm. and very rare cancers like this where time is not on your side. So right. having things move so slowly where it takes four years for something like this or um, clinical trials to take maybe 10 years to even get into the general population. People just don't have that kind of time. So you're not the first one to to state that frustration. And to hear that it's taken, especially when it's already been proven overseas, 
Because it almost sounds like a dye that an adult would have to drink to go in for like a colonoscopy. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't right. sound like it's too much, you know, I mean, obviously there's differences, but here we do, we have something like that, but yet something like this is taken, what it sounds like is over eight years plus to really have it in the general system for both adults and pediatrics. You know, something I looked into this issue, and about oh, several years ago, there's an article published that shows that the time it takes from a great idea that really works in the lab or something to clinical usage was 17 years. And now it's a little quicker, it's probably about 11 years. But, and I'm not pushing to, you know, everyone says, well, you don't want to rush something in, it's not safe. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about and I have direct experience with this. So it's mm -hmm. setting up a meeting. Okay, I have to set up a meeting with the other investigators. Well, they can't meet, so two months we'll have the next meeting, and then uh, you know, then you have to get in front of this, and then you have to revise this protocol, and then let's get us together. And what's been really kind of exciting, though, is the COVID um, issue, and COVID accelerated. Uh, tremendously accelerated uh, medical um, technology and medical usage with the vaccine development. It shows it could be done. It can be done. You, if you had the focus when you get rid of some of the, and just said, I got to get this done. It's amazing how it can accelerate. That is very true. <laughs> you know, now there's been spin-offs from COVID, the, the teleconferencing and that, which is making it better. Mm -hmm. But there's so much just like, you know, where you, you have one trial and then you have to wait. Let's get the study group together in six months to review it. And then let's, you know, um, there's such an opportunity for somebody who's in information management, uh, machine learning and other things to accelerate uh, the cure for brain tumors by just getting rid of the struggle and the logistics. Some of the red tape. The red tape, but not not safety red tape. I don't want to get right. rid of any safety red tape. I want to get rid of logistical red tape and and also university walls that you know one university puts out a study and is not really liking to share it with everyone because they want it to be come out of their you know, their program. But if we had a, a place where we could come to in the internet and share clinical experience, and when something's not working, automatically have a threshold that identifies it's not working mm -hmm. and iterate, progress could be really speeded up. And it, it's one of the incentives that led to Medelago, which we can talk about at some point. I did have one other question as we're talking about this dye and kind of, you know, this process and, and the frustration with, you know, procedure and, you know, being able to get this mm -hmm. into mainstream use in the U.S., which is slowly starting to happen. Going back to the use of the dye that just seems to be so effective. As we're talking about brain tumors, specifically when it comes to brain cancer, both in adult and pediatrics, if you're able to resect more of the tumor, find more of those margins, or in some cases, you know, and I don't know what the likelihood is, but being able to get all of it, if you know, you believe you can, does that increase the odds for the patient of being able to go longer without having a recurrence or being, being able to go longer once treatment gets going and, and having more of those chances to get over the five-year mark, is, does that really help in that goal? Absolutely. Okay. For pediatrics, 100%. For adults, it was some question with re with regard to the diffuse nature of glioblastomas and other, the multicentric nature. Mm -hmm. 
But most tumors come back at the resection margin. So now we're looking at super marginal resections. In other words, not just the contrast enhance of the white ball, but taking out the flare signal around this tumor. Uh, and that's been shown in certain subtypes of tumors to help. So the answer to your question is yes. And that the major modalities that have helped in improving extended resections are 5-ALA, this is this tumor dye, mm-hmm. and intraoperative MRI studies, uh, scans, so that a surgery performed, and then during that surgery, the neurosurgeon can do an MRI. Oh, I've got a little piece over there that wasn't, you know, I, I, I can go over there now and remove. Or I've got this little round, red amber coal over here. Let me remove that. Clearly now the studies, there are hundreds of cases now that have been done that show this clearly that um, extent of resection improves six-month survival and uh, more studies showing it improves even longer term. So, so you're talking about doing MRIs on the fly, like having having mm-hmm. somebody in on the table and then being able to do the MRI while they're there and saying, we've already got them open, let's do the MRI and figure out if there's other hot spots here that we've missed. And then, hey, we can go right back in because they're right here. Right. Wow. I didn't, right. if, I've never heard of that. So that's actually very fascinating that, that there are more medical professionals that are leaning into that because that's not something that I've we've talked about on this show. Yeah, it is one of the, these are all the adjuvants for complete resection. Now, some tumors are well circumscribed. You know, they've got, it's a, like a, a the benign ones. Are, those are straightforward to remove them all typically based on, mm-hmm. but, and, and the whole theme is safe maximal resection. You don't want to cause a patient neurologic issues that they didn't have. Cognitive deficits. Yes, and, yeah. and change their personalities and, and other things just because from an over-aggressive approach. Um, uh, so it's a balance, uh, but this is an important tool. And we want to use it in children. We're not sure it'll work for some of the tumors. Uh, uh, we it really depends on the tumor types, which ones will glow or fluoresce. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a study that we're working on. So now here we are, we're talking about all these tools, all of these things that are coming out. And, and you mentioned that you wanted a place for doctors and universities to share findings, to share studies, to share what's working and what's not. That's exactly what Medelago is. You've developed this app. Let's dive into this a little bit because I found this really fascinating when we were talking. So it's a little different what you just said, but um, just to set a background, I, I made this app for myself. Uh, I, I found I was seeing these kids with these very unusual tumors and second opinions. They were, they were coming back. They've already gone through first-line treatment, and now they come and say, well, what do we do next? And I would do what most doctors would do. They, you would go to PubMed. Uh, uh, you'd go to Google, whatever resource online you can use. And I was frustrated. It would take me 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And I didn't feel like at the end of it that I bet you there's somebody smarter than me who could have done it. We're not <laughs> search experts, you know, uh, who could get that information to me quicker and better. And the specialists who really know how to get that information are medical librarians. The new medical librarians are search experts. Doctors aren't. And the other thing that came out of this is that I knew Although the, the tumor names change, there are a lot, you know, there's about 200 different type of brain tumors. The questions I were asking were always the same questions. What's the best initial treatment? What do you do if it comes back? What's what benefits of radiation, chemotherapy, clinical trials? You know, give me a review article. 
so I knew the questions, and we we've developed this app for for myself. It's now in all the oncology specialties, uh, not just brain tumors, and. Um, I've also made very careful that it's not biased information. I haven't made any money on it, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that's not my goal. Uh, but I've also kept away f- pharmaceutical industry because mm-hmm. I don't want any bias. I want this to be a clean, crisp, factual machine that doctors can access their information quickly. Part of the problem now with doctors are there's so much information and it's time-consuming to access and you need it sometimes. Like I'm r- r- walking the hospital around and a patient just came in last night with a unique or unusual tumor. I want to know what's the best thing that's out there right now. What you know? Am I giving the best? And mm-hmm. that's where this app serves a role. Um, so walk us through this. You know, we're talking about an app, you know, to the average listener. I mean, obviously we have many medical professionals who listen, but to the average listener, walk us through a little bit. What, how is the app used? What does it look like when somebody gets into it? The word is a little awkward. <laughs> Medelago is the, is the thing. It doesn't roll off anyone's tongue. So it's, but it means delago is a Latin word for to pick, pluck, or choose, and we we turned into medelago for pick, plucking, and choosing. You know the information we want. Um, but you you just basically you, you know you open you go to medelago.com and it runs it through more detail. But um, anyway, you you have the diagnosis, and then after that it has. A list of the most common questions that doctors ask. It's point and click. You just point and click, and then it automatically pops up articles that are most recent. Um, some of them are just published a day or two ago. And you see, the problem with Google, it's a wonderful tool, obviously, but it's everyone pays a lot of money to be on that first page. Mm-hmm. Uh, big cancer centers and this sort of stuff. The search engine optimization doesn't allow doctors to get at that small study that really pertains to what they need to know easily. So sometimes good information is buried. Buried, buried. To do So this algorithm helps. But anyway, it also has videos on there, surgical videos. If I wanted to, you know, an unusual case, I wanted to brush up on and look at how the people are operating or, and it has images for the MRI studies. Uh, and I'm the topic expert for brain tumors, but in each like breast tumors, uh, skin cancer, and liver, and all that, we have their own topic because they have different questions um, that they have, and I don't know what those questions are, but they're they're on our team. So basically, this is a shared platform. Somebody can become a member, sign in, and then as they're coming across certain things, they can share information, and this algorithm would kind of takes everything and puts it into categories as it relates to the most common questions for those particular areas. So whether it's breast cancer or brain cancer, this really kind of concisely puts things into each. It doesn't really, the sharing part is is like you could share with your residents by texting, emailing, and you know this sort of thing, or saving to your library. It doesn't allow for you know that type of interface. This is like step one, okay? Okay. Uh, this this is basically gets rid of bias and editorial boards and also currency. In other words, right now, some publications are held up before they hit or even on PubMed. In others places, they have editorial boards of doctors, usually fairly well-known doctors, who pick and select which articles they think would be most pertinent 
And all this takes time. Mm-hmm. You know, I just uh, had a, they want, I put in a chapter into a new textbook and they, I wrote this chapter two years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. At a, and it's going to come out maybe next month. Over two years. Journal articles, um, you know, now they do meta-analysis. You, you have, you know, hundred articles about extent of resection and brain tumors and they do a meta-analysis to find out what did all those articles say? And let's put it into another article. That's that process to make that article, the process to publish that article, and then the process for a doctor even to access it takes a long time. It takes a year. Wow. And that's a brand new article in a journal. And then you're not even sure how to access that. How do you, you know, I've got a patient coming in 15 minutes that's got this diagnosis. How do I get that information so I can actually use it in the clinic? So it's information you're able to get on the fly. On the fly, right. And, uh, um, you know, and I would say there's nothing more powerful uh, than a well-informed patient or family member. And you take a child who has a brain tumor that's come back. There's no one that knows the literature better, typically, on the unique small studies than that family member or parent or motivated to find a cure for their child. And it's not marketed to, first of all, we don't have any marketing, but it's, it's not marketed to, to families and that, uh, but it certainly would put these articles right in their, right in their laps uh, to show their doctors. So this app is something that a caregiver can actually access as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's in the app store. Okay, so it's not just it's, for doctors. No, no, no. It's for anybody. Okay. I designed it for doctors and residents, but I don't know how, you know, I, I don't know if the, how detailed the family members want information, but it's all there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, just like you said, the caregiver or the parent, they are the most passionate advocate. Mm-hmm. Whether it's an adult or a pediatric case, they will do whatever it takes to save the patient's life. It is something where even if they can't understand all of the information, if they see enough buzz around something or they're seeing something repeatedly come up where there's getting enough feedback or enough doctors are saying, we're using this now, we just found this, and they're seeing that over and over and over again in an app like this or in a study or in feedback from something, Mm -hmm. they're absolutely, even if they don't understand exactly what they're reading, they're going to take that into the doctor and say, okay, we need to look at this. We need to dig into this because this is what we're seeing here. And so what does this mean for us and how can this be applied? I think it's extremely powerful and it's very relevant. You hear very few doctors. I I have had a number of you on that are very passionate about having the caregiver take more power, you know, making sure that they have power and control in the conversation and in the direction that the care is going and the treatment is going. But it's it's a mentality that is slow to trickle down to doctors, to other doctors in the field that have been around for a really long time. Many doctors, unfortunately, ego tends to get in the way. Mm-hmm. And what they say is is Bible, what they say is fact. And, you know, nope, nope, I know you've got this information, but nope, we're going to do it my way because I'm, I'm the authority figure. And that can be really detrimental when it comes to finding a great fit and having the best care and actually having success, which I think ultimately is what everybody wants in these cases, because these are so hard to treat cases. And I think every doctor wants to see that kind of success as well. But 
that can hinder that. And so I think it's fascinating that you touch on this and that you zero in on this and that this is really something that can be a powerful tool. And and I've been in into the app a bit. It's very user-friendly. It's not extremely hard to use or to get around in. And it's very creative. And that's what I like about this. You know, as we talk about such medically driven devices and information and ways to treat patients, this is an extremely creative way to harness information to the best of our ability and put power and control into how do we save this patient's life? How do we get them past the standard 15-month to three-year mark, which is what you see the most when it comes to a lot of these cases? So it's a really fascinating approach. And, you know, I think it's great that you came up with something like this. Well, you know what? I just, I want this to be my contribution for medicine. I'm looking at, you know, I, I really think that I see a problem in information management and there's a lot of good stuff out there. And it's like COVID. Can we just push the acceleration button on this? Can we get, you know, one of the things we just upgraded the app, it's, it's updated it just a month ago. We added a new th- section on societies. There's some wonderful societies out there, but some of the societies like ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology, wonderful society that they do these, they break down the walls. You know what I mean? Let's put all our information together and share information and mm-hmm. make it more accessible. And, and almost every tumor has its own society now. Where, But how do you access those societies? So we put that feature in because... Like you said, somebody has to do the work to get those studies and those big best things um, out in the open. So let me ask you this. You know, obviously you've got your your hand in many different things. And you talk about wanting to just be able to contribute as much as you can to have an impact to really help push the needle and move conversation along and move dialogue and education and really put power in the hands of the people and of medical professionals. We've all been immersed, whether we've wanted to be or not, in this area of brain cancer, brain tumors. It is a grueling profession, a very tough path to be on. It is not easy in any way, shape, or form, whether you're on your side of it or our side of it as the patient and the caregiver, doing the work that you do and trying to really combat a lot of old frameworks and old ways of doing things to really help push that needle along. How do you decompress? How do you find time to to keep yourself healthy and to do what you need to do to take care of yourself when you're entrenched in such a field like this? Because it is, it's weighty. I mean, this is a very heavy field to be in. Yes, and that's that's uh, you hit it on the head there. Uh, my own personal situation, it, it, uh, a marriage suffered from that, and my you know I have um, it's it's very interesting. You know the ability to compartmentalize, um, you know the death of a seven year old girl that you, mm-hmm. and then to come home and feel like everything's okay. Um, it's 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 really uh, a challenge. So. It's been a learning experience. You know, I've been doing this for 32 years, and I still don't have the answer. But um, I've learned along the way. I, I go sailing. I live on Chicago around the lake, and uh, I go out, and my boat gives me a lot of like. Uh, let's think about something else. 
but it is hard because they become family members and we all are, there's no one more brave and there's no one, it, it's what I enjoy about my life is my profession is that the wide color that I get exposed to as far as the richness of the experience where the extremes of happiness when you got the tumor out, the extremes of sorrow when the tumor keeps progressing, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's given me, it's really a privilege to witness that. And I also am, am spiritual and I, I've, I've seen that happen in my, some of my surgeries. I pray before the, for them and uh, um, I've seen some shocking miracles from, from, from that. So it's, it's a, yeah, you're right. It does. Everyone's a little different. And uh, I've been blessed with friends and uh, uh, I'm in a hospital environment that's very supportive. And uh, a lot of my friends are my colleagues and, and physicians here at the hospital and so forth. So, Well, I think that that's extremely important. And I think that I think our listeners would take comfort in knowing that, you know, wow, there's a surgeon out there who, you know, has these stories of things they can't explain, things that they've seen you know, in, in working with a patient. And, um, there are a lot of faithful, um, individuals out there. I mean, I'm, I'm one, and I actually just recently talked about, uh, struggles that I'm having, just mm-hmm. reconnecting with my faith, um, after the, the journey that I've had over the last few years, but that I'm still, I'm fighting my way through it because that has always been such a resounding piece of my, my foundation in my life. And, Mm-hmm. extremely vital, very important. And it does create stability. There is a comfort there. And I think that that's, it's fascinating. I mean, as you were describing, you know, saying a prayer for somebody before you're going in to operate on them and mm-hmm. I can kind of picture it, you know, and that's soothing. It's very soothing to have that. And I think that more people should be open to just the general concept of having faith that, you know, as devastating as this is, we we will figure it out. And I keep saying that over Mm -hmm. and over again. There are so Mm -hmm. many passionate people in this field when it Mm -hmm. comes to brain cancer that, you know, regardless of the driving forces or the factors that could or could not be related, we will figure this out. (laughs) We are getting there. And that's very hopeful. And, you know, and I think it's touching that you touch on, the you know, struggles that you've had, just the balancing act, you know, that you've, you've had a marriage that suffered from it. And, mm-hmm. and I can't even begin to imagine, I mean, that is extremely difficult. And I, I'm sure there are many people that can relate to being in that kind of position. So to have that kind of openness and, and, and rawness with our listeners, you know, even at the most basic level is, you know, it's a window into the life of what, you know, the medical professionals have to deal with um, on the other side of this. You know, there is a lot of optimism. I don't want to end up with like this, but but I really, you know, just like the human genome, they thought it'd take 20 years to uncover all the DNA sequences and so forth. And then the, it did seven years because there was this new discovery that flipped it into high gear. And I just think if we can get rid of all the logistical stuff that's really in and keep all the safe stuff, that we're really on the verge. I'm looking at all the, the oncology, this most recent ASCO meeting, where we were understanding the genetics, understanding the particular molecular natures of each individual tumor rather than putting them all in one bucket, mm-hmm. we're on the verge. I really believe that in the next five years of this exponential um, leap forward, and I just wish it had the attention that COVID did. <laughs> um, 
and well, and it could now. I mean, now that COVID's out there, I mean, there's no excuse anymore. Yeah. They've really shown that this can be done. So there really is no excuse anymore. And I think that's what mm-hmm. we all have to continue fighting against. And I think that now that the FDA regulation systems and pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and everybody that just came together and said, we need to get this done for COVID and for vaccines for COVID and everything else. Well, you've shown us now that it can be done. So there's no more excuse. (laughs) You know, it's out there. It's in the public domain now. Right, right. Exactly. Well, before we end our conversation today, I would love to have you just tell our listeners where they can find the app, where they can go for that. And if they would like to learn a little bit more about the work that you do and, you know, if there's a patient out there that is looking for a referral or if they would love to meet with somebody new, um, if you're taking new patients right now, and if so, where can they go to reach out to you if there's uh, a caregiver or a patient's family that um, is in need? Well, thank you for that. I First of all, I want to just... Just today, I have a lovely new partner uh, just came from Stanford for pediatric neurosurgery, Dr. Daphne Lee, who's really at the forefront of new technologies and things and uh, here with me. And so I'm really looking forward to how she brings forward uh, a lot of our new stuff here, which is great. Uh, but you can find find me on www.johnrugiasoneword.com. But... Um, and the app is at, you know, www.medelago.com. And Medelago is spelled M-E-D-E-L-I-G-O. Correct. And if anybody has any problems or suggestions or comments, just uh, access to contact them at that website as well. And if somebody's looking for a referral or if they're looking to get a consultation or, or meet with you and your team, what would be the best way for them to reach out? Just Google my name. It'll come up with our hospital contact information. Um, and, you know, I'm here in Park Ridge, Illinois, in Chicago. Thank you for all you do, and and, and actually, you know, focusing on some of these. I think that's how we get information out. We have we got lots of information, lots of different things, but some of it's buried, and so it's really nice what you're doing for these podcasts. Oh, I appreciate that. And I I think it's vital. And I think having media streams like this, which, I mean, there are millions of podcasts out there, but there really aren't a lot of things discussing brain cancers, brain tumors, pediatric adult, rare diseases like this, where we can collectively all come together as a community and really share and get that information out. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on today. And, and sharing this amazing technology and the, the creative way in which you're trying to really aggregate very vital and important information in one place. And I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I do think that we're going to see this continue to grow and become something really beneficial. So for all of our listeners, just so you're aware, when we get ready to put up all the information on the website for the show, you will see a hyperlink to the Medelago app, as well as information regarding uh, Dr. John Rugi and how you can get a hold of him and his staff if you have any other questions or information regarding the work that he does. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate this. I think this was a great conversation and so vital to the work that everybody is doing in this field. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks for doing it. And we will be right back after a brief word from our sponsor. 
This episode is brought to you by Mimivax LLC, developing immunotherapeutic vaccines and therapies for treatment of cancers such as glioblastoma. Learn more at Mimivax.com. I'd like to thank Dr. Rugi for being our guest on today's show. It's incredible to see the sheer number and volume of medical professionals, foundations, organizations, all of us who are out there really trying so hard to find better treatments, better ways to help patients and families in the brain cancer community. This is why we do what we do. I'd like to talk a little bit about our fundraiser coming up in October, Trap Hagen's Trail Ride for Brain Cancer. Part of the reason that I started this initiative was, again, to help raise funds and raise the level of awareness about brain cancer in our community. The fundraiser runs for months. The cycling event takes place in October as a way to memorialize my late husband, all come together for brain cancer awareness, and to just have a nice day to share moments with each other to create a community. It's a fun time. But behind that is the fundraiser. And there are really exciting things coming up for Trap Hagen's Trail Ride in the near future. In the meantime, the fundraiser this year truly helps brain cancer clinical trials and 100% of the proceeds go to Roswell Park Cancer Center Brain Cancer Clinical Trials. So I hope you can all join me. I hope you can help us raise funds desperately necessary to help the brain cancer community. You can visit give.roswellpark.org slash go to slash Trap Hagen's Trail Ride for Brain Cancer. And four is the number four. Please visit, make a donation, however small you or however large, it does not matter. Every dollar helps. And continue to follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, where you can stay up to date and keep up with the progress of the fundraiser and everything going on with our cycling event. On Game on Glio's Facebook page, we do have an events page that lists the fundraiser and talks about where proceeds and donations can be sent. We will also be giving away some Hope Totes bags in partnership with Hope Totes Buffalo to some of our larger donors, and we hope to be announcing some special gifts that will be in there as well. So please stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Game on Glio podcast. And don't forget to set your phones, set your reminders, because in October, we will have a two-episode month. We will have Anko Synergy as one of our guests and Dave from the Fierce Foundation as a very special guest honoring grief and loss at the end of the month. So join us, stay tuned, and please like us on Facebook, share us with others, and continue to follow along as we continue to grow and share more stories for the Game on Glio podcast. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories 
of those walking the journey of brain cancers such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. If you like our show, please share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or on Facebook at Game on Glio. You can visit our website and our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.